Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton councillors have tweaked the city's COVID-19 vaccination policy, putting unvaccinated employees under the microscope. Students go back to class on Monday, but will Ontario's newest back-to-school plan keep them safe? Quebec's proposed anti-vaccine tax continues to make waves. Are we going to see more empty shelves in grocery stores? And will the federal government start taxing the sale of your home? The GMH Podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton Podcast on 900 CHML. We are uh, trying to achieve the uh, ultimate uh, health and optimal health and safety of our our workforce. Uh, The best best way to manage that is through vaccinations. So I I would suggest that the... uh, the ultimate objective of the policy has not changed. That is the voice of Hamilton HR Director Laura Fontana, who is um, basically saying that uh, the city has a new COVID-19 vaccination policy for employees. Unvaccinated workers will have until the end of May to get fully vaxxed or lose their jobs on June 1st. Fred Eisenberger is the mayor of the city of Hamilton and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Fred. How are you? I am very well, Rick. Thank you, and uh, and Happy New Year to you and all of your listeners. Same to you. Why is this move yeah. being done now? Well, I mean, this has been a progression. We've uh, tried the educational process. We've tried to accommodate folks through, uh, through the testing regime. Uh, that testing regime is now getting even more challenging, uh, you know, given supply and everything else that's uh, going on relative to the Omicron virus. Virus, and so uh, you know, at uh, at some point, we were going to get to this uh, this uh, juncture where, uh, you know, our our requirement to provide a healthy and safe uh, work environment, uh, you know, overrides uh, you know anyone else's you know position on whether or not they decide to get vaccinated or not, or or whether they decide to declare. We need to know. Uh, we need to have people vaccinated. Right now, we're not uh, hiring anyone that hasn't been vaccinated. That's already been a policy. And this is just the uh, the natural progression of where our health and safety issues are are going to end up. Uh, and I'm hopeful that uh, that the vast majority of the 470 folks that have decided to either not declare or not get vaccinated that they uh, they decide to do whatever everyone else uh, you know vast majority of our population has decided is important not only for themselves their family but for the community as a whole and for our kind of city corporate community that uh, keeping each other safe is uh, important and so uh, you know do your do your do your job do your your, your responsibility to our community and uh, get the vaccine it's an easy solution and uh, you know none, no one needs to get fired if they uh, just follow through with the vaccination process like many many others have done this decision impacts seven percent of Hamilton's workforce or about 500 people or so could there be a big impact on city services if they all or even some uh, don't get vaccinated? Um, I, I would say no. I think that, that uh, you know, the senior leadership team has all looked at this, whether it's, uh, whether it's fire or paramedics or public health or public works. Uh, they all believe that they can, uh, they can manage this going forward. And there certainly also is an expectation, as, as has happened in other municipalities, that, uh, that have had a termination clause in their, in their mandatory vaccination policy that, uh, that, you know, many of the folks that have been uh, resistant so far step up and actually do the right thing. So um, I'm, we're, we're hopeful that, uh, that it's, it's going to be a very, very small number. Uh, and uh, certainly there's a belief on the, the overall number right now. So we have to plan for the worst but hope for the best. 
that uh, that uh, it's manageable and that we uh, continue to provide services safely and effectively for our citizens. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Fred Eisenberger, the mayor of the city of Hamilton, and we are talking about the city's new COVID-19 vaccination policy for those who don't have a double dose, get the shot by the end of May or lose their job by June 1st. As we know, Omicron is much more transmissible than previous variants of uh, the coronavirus. Um, are there more positive cases popping up within City of Hamilton services and employees? Uh, like like everywhere else, Rick. Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, that that is also a kind of going ongoing and growing concern. And we have, you know, the vast majority of our our city workers are working. Uh, you know, they're working in the broader community. They're working uh, next to to one another, whether it's public works or public health. Uh, you know, the uh, the the, the uh, the only place where we don't have, you know, immediate contact with one another right now is uh, is it on the administrative side at City Hall specifically or at some of our service centers. So, uh, you know, the uh, the impact is uh, is going to be felt. Uh, the impact of the virus is hitting uh, not only city services but or city employees, but public health employees, uh, hospital employees, uh, paramedics, fire. All of them are being impacted by this, and everyone is stepping up to uh, to to be able to handle the shortfall. But the reality is that we have to do everything that we can to curb the spread of this virus, uh, you know, in, in, in favor of keeping people employed, in favor of keeping our economy as open as we can, uh, as, as long as we can. And so, uh, you know, we all have a responsibility here, and uh, certainly uh, city employees uh, are no different than the rest of the population that uh, are being asked to, uh, to vaccinate or uh, face uh, some some challenges and things that they want to do that uh, they're going to have to demonstrate they have had the vaccine uh, to to be able to do. So you know what we're uh, we're no different than the general population out there. Uh, you know if there's a 20 percent potential uh, impact in terms of folks that are uh, that are off sick. Uh, it is flu season, so you you might expect that uh, you know a lot of that happens through flu season in any event. So it's something that we've always had to manage. And uh, certainly uh, this is not the flu, uh, so let's not make that equation. But thankfully, for, the, for those that are vaccinated, it, uh, it feels like the flu. Uh, for those that are unvaccinated, as my, uh, my respirologist brother-in-law says, who is working at the general, uh, the vast majority of the people that he's seeing and treating right now are folks that are unvaccinated, that are in serious trouble as a result of this virus. And so uh, we have a responsibility to uh, not only protect uh, one another, but to protect uh, our, our, our employees, uh, protect our health care system, to ensure that we uh, continue to have an open, that we can continue to get to a more open economy where all the restaurants and shops and everything else is open and uh, freely available. The only way we do that is through vaccination, and uh, that's going to be uh, an issue now, and it's going to be an issue into the future. We have one more minute with ha- Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. From a testing capacity standpoint, we've heard that millions and millions and millions of testing units have been procured, uh, but we're still seeing a shortage. Where Where is the shortfall? Where's the stumbling block here? Well, I mean, it's just sheer numbers and supply. I mean, the demand, uh, like 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 everything else, uh, when the demand is up, the supply gets challenged, and uh, you know that right now to meet that supply, I'm sure it's it's a, not only a distribution issue, it's a manufacturing issue, it's the ability to get it into the hands of individuals, and I, and I would say, as our medical officer of health uh, suggests, that this this uh, this over reliance on 
on uh, you know rapid testing uh, is uh, not sustainable and nor, nor is it particularly positive. And I think the bottom line in all of this is for anyone out there that if you're if you have symptoms, uh, sniffles, or not feeling uh, you're not feeling like you're right, uh, then you know you, you should assume that you have a uh, the Omicron uh, virus that, uh, and, and you should isolate and uh, try and prevent the spread uh, going to anyone else. And, you know, the the ability for a lot of folks to do that has a lot to do with the kind of supports that are out there. And I think the good news is going to continue to provide supports for individuals that uh, are unable to get to work or, or and hopefully employers would do, do the same. But uh, you know this uh, this over reliance on testing is uh, is a little worrisome, uh, and it, it it almost feels like a bit of a mania that everyone wants their hands on these uh, you know rapid tests. Uh, you can do a little. Uh, we're starting to lose Mayor Fred Eisenberger on his cell. We'll have to bid him a adieu. I'm not sure if you can hear me, Mayor Fred, but thanks for your time, and we'll chat with you uh, sometime uh, in the not too distant future. I am sure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Staff and students will receive two tests each as an initial supply with over 3.9 million rapid tests shipped to schools as we speak, ready for January 17th. That is Education Minister Stephen Lecce yesterday. You heard live on 900 CHML mentioning the back-to-school plan that will take effect on Monday as our little ones head back into the physical classroom for the first time since the start of the winter break. Is the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board ready? Well, let's ask the chair of the board, Don Danko. She joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Good morning, Don. How are you today? I'm good, Rick. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. Given that you're in the education field, what kind of grade would you give Ontario's latest back-to-school plan? I hate when I get asked for a grade. There, there's so many factors that go into it. Um, I, I do have to say that, and I'm not picking a grade, I do have to say that there's a number of things that, that I've, I've seen responded to in the past week uh, that they had not announced last week. Uh, I, I believe when they gave us that announcement last week, I would have felt much better with some of this information about, um, you know, just some of the things of getting rapid tests into schools because we were told we weren't going to have them. In terms of timing, at least they've given us a little notice. So, okay, I'll, I'll pick a, a C at this point. <laughs> I'm not thrilled. I'm not thrilled. Uh, they're not failing because they have been responsive to what we've asked for. For the record, I did not twist your arm on that one. <laughs> How is, because there's so much that needs to be done, and, and it's nice to know that you have a little more time than you've had in previous announcements, how is the board getting ready? What needs to be done? Well, there's a lot of work to be done, of course, anytime we transition our mode of, of delivery for students. Um, one of the things we are doing, and, and it's important for families to be aware, there will be a half day of transition time for educators to, to be able to prepare for that shift to in-person learning on Friday afternoon. So that will not be instructional time online for any any class that would typically be in person. Um, and for our special education students that are in person this week, they will be going home early that day. And we just felt that was really important, uh, one, to help plan for that transition, two, to make sure that uh, principals can have a, a meeting with their staff virtually, make sure everybody understands some of the new rules, there's new screening, there's um, you know, a, a number of things that we want to make sure we have in place for Monday. Um, so it, it's really just to make sure that everyone's prepared. Have you heard from other educators, be it principals, teachers, maybe even students since yesterday's announcement? And is there a common denominator in their reaction and, and what they're thinking about this plan? 
honestly, it's quite mixed. Um, we, we, we have people that feel that, yes, students need to be in school. In-person learning is the best way we can support the whole student. And I think that's really what's driving this shift back to in-person as quickly as possible, is that we know from the data last year, we've heard from, from our, our health experts, especially in the pediatric field, that for the sake of their mental health, their well-being, and their development, in-person learning is critical. Um, at the same time, we know what's happening with cases in the community, and we've said in the past, schools are a reflection of the community when it comes to COVID cases. So if they are ballooning in the community, that means they will come into school. So there is uncertainty, there is some anxiety uh, going back. And I would say, you know, I primarily hear from parents. Um, I'm, I'm hearing, again, mixed reactions. Some parents saying, we have some risk factors at home that are maybe different than other families, and I'm not comfortable sending my kids back now. What are the options for me to, to have my kids learn remotely temporarily? Because we have offered a permanent remote solution where you can actually let us know this week there's a survey open uh, that you would like to shift to remote for the rest of the year. But there are parents saying, well, that's, that's not going to work. I know my kids need to be back in person, just not right now because we have risk factors at home. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Don Danko, chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board. We're talking about Monday's return to the physical classroom. The outbreak notification benchmark, if I can call it that, in which parents are only going to be notified of a positive case if 30% of students are absent from a school, that's, I think, rightfully so being panned. A bit of a head-scratcher for me. What are your thoughts on that? Well, one of the things we asked the ministry for last week, um, we, we penned a letter to, to advocate for some additional measures, was to have some level of reporting. That's something that's been helpful for, for school boards, for families, for staff, to understand what the risk is in a given school. Should we be closing a classroom cohort? Should we be closing a school? And so initially, there was not going to be any reporting at all. So this is a step in the right direction, but I, I really don't believe it's going to be helpful, um, aside from saying, oh, wow, 30%, one third of the students in a class or in a school are absent. We're not necessarily going to know that it's related to COVID or not. Um, but that, that's, a, that's a significant number uh, before we would be reporting. So that's reporting to the ministry. We did confirm with the minister yesterday in a chair minister teleconference that boards can work with their local public health to determine additional reporting measures that are above this, like it, it, that, that would exceed this, this benchmark. And I certainly will be advocating for that on our board meeting on Monday. The trick to that, too, is, you know, a, a parent may keep a, uh, a child at home because they have COVID symptoms, but may not necessarily test or even test positive for COVID. But we've been told, listen, if you have a cold, it's, it, odds are you, you have the Omicron variant. So this may not even, we may never even see this 30 percentile reached. Right. When, what, they're be, what they'll be looking at is absences as a proxy for what's happening with COVID in schools. Right. And so it, it's not a direct measure. Um, like people may be off because they had a family member that traveled. There may be different reasons they're, they're off from school that aren't even related to symptoms. I think, though, if we have an ability to track who has a probable case or a confirmed case because they actually have symptoms or they've been tested, and we recognize not everyone's going to have access to a test anytime they have symptoms. Um, but if we have that reported, that would be more useful information than just looking at absences alone from my, that's what I believe. Uh, now, logistically, can we do that? Uh, how can we report that? I think that's what we need to figure out with public health and with staff. That's a good point, Don. Really appreciate the time today. Best of luck come Monday and uh, for the rest of the school year. I know it's going to be challenging. 
Thank you so much. Don Danko is the chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board, joining us here on GMH on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Staff and students will receive two tests each as an initial supply, with over 3.9 million rapid tests shipped to schools as we speak, ready for January 17th. Education Minister Stephen Lecce says rapid COVID-19 tests will be distributed starting next week to staff, then the kids in daycares, and then the students in public elementary schools, followed by high school students. That's just part of the plan that the government revealed yesterday as we head back to school on January 17th. But there are a lot of question marks in regards to what the province has laid out in front of us. Laura Walton is the president of CUPE's Ontario School Board Council of Unions and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Laura, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you? Not too bad. With every plan or idea, there is some good and bad. Maybe we'll start with the good on this. What do you like about the government's back-to-school plan? (sighs) Well, I mean, we we did ask for tests, and, you know, we will get two. That's not exactly uh, what we were hoping for. We were hoping for a more of a monitoring system so that folks would be able uh, to, you know, test to stay, know that they were healthy, uh, so, you know, that is that is a start. So let's hope that we're moving in the right direction. What's the biggest concern in your mind? Um, I think there's two for, for me. Uh, first of all, you, you, you said it, with every plan. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that is really important is where is the integrity and faith that the parents and families and educators have? It's been two years. Um, we have been flip-flopped all over the place. Um, And for many that I am hearing from, parents and educators and families, even students, they're saying, well, what's the difference between this and and the chaos for the last two years? The other thing that I have a huge concern about is we have heard a lot about what Ricci's plans are uh, to tackle the concerns of teachers who are away ill. And I won't use absenteeism, to be clear, because that's without reason. We know that folks are going to be sick uh, and they will be away. The problem is, is that they haven't even looked at education workers. So EAs, custodians, DECEs, clerical, those folks are in the schools. As a matter of fact, those folks have always been in the schools. Uh, Even when things were remote, our folks were in the schools. Um, And they have no plan, and we have no replacement staffing. The issue of notification when a child is exposed to a positive COVID-19 case at school has many people kind of scratching their head because the government said parents are only going to be notified if there is about 30 percent of students in the school who are absent. Um, I've, I've always been the believer that knowledge is power and not telling parents what's going on is kind of a, a, a head scratcher. It is, and I think uh, MVP Marit Stiles really nailed it yesterday. You will know of a case of lices in your child's classroom before you will know whether there's COVID. Uh, interesting enough, we started to do some digging, and we found a document from 2012 during influenza that cited a 10% absent, um, absences would be reason to contact the public health and notify parents. So um, we're a little concerned at why 30 um, that seems to be extremely high. And I think what you've also really pointed out is this is extremely reactive. This, you know, the old saying is an ounce of prevention versus a pound of cure. And it looks like we're relying heavily on the pound of cure 
rather than even investigating the ounce of prevention. Laura Walton is our guest. Laura is the president of CUPE's Ontario School Board's Council of Unions. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Uh, Much has been made about um, uh, having access to PPE in the school setting. Is there enough to go around? Are our teachers and our kids going to be safe? So there's a couple of issues that we have with the the N95s uh, to date because, I, as I mentioned, our custodians, for instance, have been packed. They've never actually left. They've always been our, in our schools. And we had several boards that were saying, oh, no, it's not for you. So we're going to be following up where that is a problem. The other issue is, is that they've made the N95 masks optional and have not provided for students. And that is also problematic. This is an airborne virus. Um, and we believe that we should be taking every step possible to protect the staff and students. The uh, students in Ontario schools will also be given two rapid COVID-19 tests after they uh, return to school on January 17th. Is that enough? I know more supply is going to be coming down, but is that enough? And we know that that rapid antigen test isn't 100% accurate all the time. Absolutely. We know that it is not 100% act, um, accurate. And what I heard yesterday is, oh, you have to save it until they're, they are um, symptomatic. But I think what this plan is also missing is where are the paid sick leave days for everyone? Uh, so if you have a parent who doesn't have paid sick leave, you're waiting until there's 30% cases. Um, it's really very privileged to assume that everyone can afford to stay home uh, when they have symptoms and even more so, um, you know, stay home when their kid has symptoms. And I think that is also very problematic. What's the biggest thing that's missing from this plan? Consultation. Uh, you know, when we raised it yesterday with the ministry and we said, what's your plan for educators when they're off sick? And they said, do you have any ideas? That's really worrisome to us. Um, I don't feel that this government is really consulting with parents, with families, with, you know, frontline education workers, not just teachers, but frontline education workers and the community. Uh, you know, it is now going to be having kids eating in, in, you know, lunch rooms, but we don't have restaurants open. Like there's no rhyme or reason to what is happening. Yeah, it is pretty befuddling. Our Twitter poll question today is, uh, do you give Ontario's back-to-school plan a thumbs up or a thumbs down? My guess is you're you're the latter. You're in the latter category. Yeah. You know, at this point, um, there are so many pieces that we're really concerned about. And, you know, from the very get-go, um, our concern is, is that this isn't something that you can get wrong, right? On the line are the health and safety of children and staff. Um, and so at this point, there's still a lot of pieces. And if the, we've heard so many times that this is the best plan in Canada, and yet we had more school closures than anywhere in Canada. So um, I'm really not sure why we've now changed the tune to, oh, well, nobody else is doing this, so why should we? Yeah, it is a head-scratcher top to bottom. There are some good things, as I mentioned, but there are some, um, as I said, puzzling things as well. Laura, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, and you take care. You too. Stay That's safe. Laura Walton, president of CUPE's Ontario School Board Council of Unions. Uh, not not a big fan of the back-to-school plan. I'm not sure anyone is other than the people who put it in place, i.e. the government, because there are some things that you know leave you wanting more, leave you questioning why it's being done. And I, I think the biggest one for me is the absenteeism. You know, how, how do they get to that 30% figure? Parents want to know. Parents want to know if their child is in a classroom where someone else is tested positive. You know, what action they take is now up to them. 
But I think they want that information. I think that is a key piece that the government kind of dropped the ball on this morning. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Is the anti-vaccine tax in Quebec legal? Boy, oh boy, it is getting a lot of talk, and not just in Quebec, but all over the country. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was asked about it yesterday, and he said the provinces have a right to explore incentives. The details will be important in how this works, uh, how it balances uh, the values and the rights that we all cherish as Canadians with the necessity of keeping people safe. Vaccines are about keeping Canadians safe, continuing to get through this pandemic the best possible way. Trudeau says governments are right to look at ways to incentivize people to get vaccinated. Some, however, are calling this a big backward step. Kara Zwiebel is the director of Fundamental Freedoms and acting general counsel with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association and joins us this morning on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Kara. How are you? Good morning. I'm good, thanks. How are you? Not too bad. Before we get to what you think about Quebec's proposed plan, I want to get your thoughts on what the prime minister had to say about the proposed plan. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, I mean, I think, uh, I think it, it's a bit of a dodge, um, <laughs> in terms of, uh, you know, trying to, to avoid, uh, coming out one way or the other on this. Um, but in fairness, there, there are a lot of details lacking. We really don't know what this is going to look like, and a lot, a lot does depend on that. I think, um, you know, the, the Prime Minister sort of framed this as, um, uh, the right to incentivize people to be vaccinated. Uh, I guess the, the, the question for me is whether, this is an incentive or um, or a, a more sort of more of a coercive measure. Yeah, and on the surface, and really the devil is going to be in the details, and I mentioned on the program yesterday, I thought, you know, as I've been thinking about this, I, I, I kind of like the idea, but there are certain things, when I think about it, I don't like. Like, you know, if you're a, a millionaire or a billionaire, you can certainly pay to be unvaccinated, and, and if you end up in the hospital, then so be it. You can still pay the fine. For those who can't afford it, uh, have been forced out of a job because of the uh, of the pandemic, you're really in a rut. Um, so Will this work, and, and do we just need to see more of the meat and potatoes of what Quebec is proposing here? Yeah, I think I think we need to see the details, but I think we also need uh, something from the government of Quebec that lays out what what the real objective is. Um, you know, is, is there some reason to think that uh, that this will actually, you know, result in more people being vaccinated? Um, my my guess is there's not much evidence. Uh, of that, you know, one way or the other. Um, the, the other question is, you know, are these these fines or that they call them taxes? I would I would say they're fines. Um, you know, are are they actually going to help contribute to to the sort of the crisis in in the healthcare system that we're seeing? Um, you know, what is the purpose? Because whenever you have a law that restricts or limits fundamental rights, the court you know, have to assess its reasonableness. And the way that they do that is by looking at the objective that government is trying to achieve and, and whether the, the means that they're using are, are sort of reasonable and proportional. And, and so I think we, we need more from the government about really what the objective is here. Because the, the, the premier's comments, to be honest, sounded a, a lot like the objective was, was to punish people, um, you know, that, that basically this isn't fair. And uh, it's right for everyone who's vaccinated to be angry at everyone who's unvaccinated and to and to want to sort of extract something from them. But um, that, that's not a very compelling objective when it comes to to you know measures that might restrict people's fundamental rights. 
one of the big fears um, coming out of this is this could pave the way, this could be the start of the runway to a two-tier healthcare system. Is that a possibility? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, you know, the, the wedge that this sort of puts in our system is that it, it, we, we've, we've always taken the view that, you know, everyone is entitled to, to basic health care and that you contribute to the health care system based on, you know, your, your income, your ability to pay and not, um, not your actions, right? We don't have private insurance where the, the type of job you have or the type of lifestyle you lead or, you know, pre-existing health conditions and things like that affect what you pay. But this potentially, I think, you know, the concern is that this leads us down that road. Uh, also, and we're chatting with uh, Kara Zwiebel, the Director of Fundamental Freedoms and Acting General Counsel of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. R- recently, the President of the Canadian Medical Association, Dr. Catherine Smart, said that we have to have a discussion about the level of care that we deliver to those who are in ICU who are unvaccinated. And that's a slippery slope, too. Yeah, it, it certainly is. I mean, I think that, um, you know, we've I think the, there's been this sense that people who are not vaccinated are uh, all people who are misinformed or people who have sort of outlandish conspiracy, you know, theories about about the vaccine. But um, I'm not actually sure that that's, that's really borne out in reality. I know that I've certainly spoken to, to people who, um, you know, who generally are, are supportive of vaccines, who would um, who would like to to take the vaccine, but uh, in some cases have actually been advised by their own physicians because of complicated medical conditions or, or you know, overlapping disabilities that, um, that, that, that they shouldn't. And, um, you know, there, there's a lot of controversy, I think, in the medical community about, uh, about whether, um, whether doctors that are, you know, warning certain patients not to do this are, uh, are doing the wrong thing. But, um, you know, for, for a patient in that position, I think that, it's reasonable for them to say, you know, well, my, my doctor who I trust is, is saying maybe I shouldn't do this. So what 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 am I supposed to do with that when the government is giving me this other message? Carol, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us this morning and uh, have a great day. Thanks. You too. Kara Zwiebel is the Director of Fundamental Freedoms and the Acting General Counsel at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Have you been to your local grocery store lately? And if so, have you noticed, now this is not widespread, but have you noticed from time to time there's a few empty shelves? Maybe you're looking for a certain item, you go to the store and then, oh my gosh, they're all gone. And you see the little tap, out of stock. None to be found. That is happening with a little more regularity, at least in in the grocery stores that I visit. And I have a, I have not really a rotation, I visit three local grocery stores. Because usually, you know, one, one store will have a better deal than the other, and yeah, he finds the drive worth it. And so I'll visit, you know, one stop, go to the next one, get what I need to get, and off to the, the other store I go. I'm also a flyer guy. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at flyers, grocery store flyers, to see who's got the best deal. Big news uh, from the federal government, because as we heard back in November, Ottawa said, uh, listen, by this time, this weekend, Canadian truckers who are not fully vaccinated or uh, not vaccinated at all will have to quarantine 
once they cross the border from the U.S. into Canada. And so yesterday, there was a little bit of a flip-flop. But before that flip-flop, there was a lot of lot of reaction from the Canadian trucking industry, obviously. The uh, president of the Canadian Trucking Alliance, Stephen Laskowski, says about 10% of the 120,000 Canadian big riggers who go back and forth across the border may not be able to work because uh, they they don't have the shot. There are many of our members who have already said they will not be dispatching unvaccinated drivers across the border uh, beginning this week. We've never been opposed to the direction of this policy. It's the timing of it. Well, the policy has now been changed because Ottawa says, uh, listen, those Canadian truckers will not have to quarantine. However, come Saturday, American truckers will have to do so. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois is a professor of food distribution and policy and the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. He's the food professor. Dr. Charlebois joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Charlebois, good morning. Good morning. So the question is, should we be breathing a sigh of relief? We know that Canadian truckers won't have to quarantine, but American truckers will still have to if they don't have a double dose. Or, or, or should we be breathing easier today? A little, yeah. I mean, uh, I woke up this morning reading the news. Uh, I think it's, it is it is good news. Uh, obviously, we're going to see more food coming into uh, to Canada. We do buy uh, for well over $21 billion, billion worth of agri-food products every year, and a lot of it actually comes in during the winter months. Uh, and we're in the winter right now, so that's why I think uh, the vaccine mandate was, was ill-timed. Um, the other issue, of course, is Omicron. Omicron has slowed things way down. Uh, it, it, it's, it, it's impacting the entire food industry violently. And so that's why people are starting to see empty shelves here and there. And at least uh, with this change, uh, or at least this, 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 this change given by Ottawa, I think it's going to help a little bit. So why has Omicron affected the supply chain to a greater extent than previous variants? What, what's new? It's just it's impacting uh, a, lot, a lot of people uh, all at once. That's the thing. And so right now, most food companies, even, even transport companies, will tell you they're, they're missing anywhere between 15 to 20 percent of their staff. Uh, and, uh, and that's why, you know, rolling inventories... Uh, uh, doing things is, is is much more difficult with fewer people around, and so that's why right now the supply chain is is very fragile, uh, much more fragile than just a month ago when the vaccine mandate was uh, was decided, and so that's why I think it was prudent for Ottawa to to make some changes. Now we're still. Uh, looking at the January 22nd uh, uh, rule by the Americans, uh, but it hasn't been confirmed by the Biden administration yet. So let's hope that things will change even more over the next few days. Uh, some some uh, individuals believe that Omicron will begin to crest later on this month. We'll have a much better February than we've had in January. So when it comes to food distribution and empty shelves at our grocery stores, are we going to see more and more of this before the end of the month? Uh, it's, it's not going to get better. Uh, let's, let's put it this way. I think Canadians will be able to continue to buy what they need, uh, at the grocery store. Uh, they, they, 
they won't be able to always buy what they want. I, I, I think that's the difference. So you, you kind of have to shift your expectations a little bit. Uh, do expect some, some empty shelves. Uh, it will continue to happen. But uh, we're expecting once we're over that Omicron hump, and hopefully the border will remain fluid, um, we'll, we'll, we should be okay by, by February and March. Because there are delays, um, what about the quality of food, like produce? Are we seeing a quality reduction? Uh, it's, we've always seen that. Uh, it's been going on for months, actually. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if you've noticed yourself, but uh, I know a lot of people have noticed uh, uh, products are not as fresh as they used to. Um, and this is the, this is the one thing that uh, that I, I'm I'm telling a lot of people: uh, instead of hoarding or or, or or bulk buying, you actually you should be doing the opposite because of supply chain woes. Um, if you end up buying a lot of food for say a week or two weeks. You're probably going to end up throwing away a lot of it because uh, it's not as fresh as it used to, or it will go go sour, or you know. So you have to be careful with with how you buy and pace yourself at the grocery store. Great stuff, Doctor Charlebaugh. Thank you for the time, and uh, we'll chat with you sometime in the future. All right, take care. Bye bye. Doctor Sylvain Charlebaugh is uh, the food professor, professor of food distribution and policy, and the director of the Agri Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. And he was chatting about buying in bulk. I think a lot of people do this. They think, hey, we're, we're going to get a better deal, and, and in most cases, that is the case. You buy in bulk, you get you know a, a few pennies shaved off here and there because you're buying that bulk item. Uh, but if you're throwing it away at the end of the day. Or at the end of a couple weeks, you're not really saving that money, are you? You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation has released a home equity tax calculator. Why? Well, it's going to show how much money each Canadian homeowner could be required to pay if Ottawa started taxing the sale of principal residences, i.e. you sell your home, they tax you on it. I'm telling you, death and taxes. This is all we got. Franco Terrazano is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and is now our guest on GMH. Franco, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning. I'm great. Thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm saying hands off to the federal government. Don't touch our homes. Yeah, that's what we're saying as well. Um, but look, these, uh, us taxpayers here, I think we should be worried that politicians are going to be coming after our homes, uh, especially at the federal level, to pay off their massive debt. We just found out that the federal government is using our tax dollars to fund a research report that, in fact, called for a home tax on Canadians. So that's why we released this home equity tax calculator. And, you know, this could cause a lot of pain for many Canadians. Um, Many Canadians who worked hard their whole life, they bought their home, and they rely on the sale of their home to fund the retirement. Well, they could be stuck with a tax bill of tens of thousands of dollars if a home equity tax came in, but also for younger demographics too. Maybe the young couple who want to sell their home, use the proceeds to upgrade to the first family home, buy the good school, or even for people um, like myself who don't, who are renters but are looking to buy a home, well, this tax would just be added on to the price of home sales. So this, is really, this would be really bad news for taxpayers. So usually where there's smoke, there is fire. We have found the smoke in the form of this report. How soon will we eventually find this fire? What's the likelihood of this taking effect one day? Well, in terms of when is it coming, we don't know, but we're going to keep fighting. What we do know is that the federal government is sniffing around our homes. We have seen a clear trajectory in the last budget. 
the federal government announced a new tax on non-Canadians, so on foreigners who own so-called unused, uh, underused, sorry, or vacant homes. Then in the last election, the Liberal Party said that they would send the tax man after you if you sold your house before the government thinks you should. We know that the federal government has spent $250,000 of our tax monies uh, looking at home taxes. Um, so this is a very real possibility, and that's why we're sounding the alarm here and calling on the rest of Canadian taxpayers, your audience, to really push back against the federal government. Franco, you mentioned that uh, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation has a calculator of this proposed, or at least, I guess, uh, researched home equity tax. Uh, what kind of tax are we looking at? How much money are we looking at potentially losing to the taxman? Oh, well, uh, first I have to say it really depends, right, on your own on your own circumstances, when you bought the home, how much you paid, what you think you can sell. Um, so go over at taxpayer.com. You can check out the calculator there and, and put in your own numbers. But let me give you a concrete example. And one of the demographics that we're really worried about here is, is our parents and our grandparents that are looking to retire. So let's say a couple, let's say they bought their home in the Toronto area for about $250,000 in, in 1980. And, and their family lived there for a few decades and they're looking to sell now for $1.2 million. Well, their tax bill could be anywhere between $51,000 all the way up to $190,000. So that's tens of thousands of dollars um, that this retiring couple could no longer use to fund their golden years. So if that would be the case, would a home seller not just say, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be out fif- at least fifty-one I'm going to add that to the sale price, and this is going to drive up the price of homes? Oh, that's a very real possibility, and, and that's why that's why I we're we're worried that not only will this harm people um, who are selling their home, but this could also harm people who are looking to buy their home. Right? I mean, it, it's no it's it's, it's pretty obvious that we have these sky-high home prices and we have a real problem here in Canada. And and a new tax is not going to make homes less expensive. This type of new tax would make homes even more expensive. Um, Now, I mentioned the federal government funding a report that called for a home tax. This report was supposed to look at ways at how to reduce home prices. But even in that report that recommended a home tax, it acknowledged that uh, people might just tack on the tax to the listing price. Well, that seems pretty obvious to me. Ouch. Franco, I know you and the CTF will be keeping tabs on this, and uh, we bid you the, the best of luck in doing so. I know it's, uh, it's not going to be a lot of fun if that tax does become a reality. Thanks for joining us today, and enjoy the rest of your day. Hey, you too. Thanks for having me on. That's Franco Terrazano, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Yeah, that's a big chunk of change if you're selling your house, and that tax does come to be. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.